Hi, welcome to Megs on the Mic, the official podcast of the AGL Young Alumni Network. I'm Stephen Radke, and I'm joined by co-hosts Amanda Ulrich and Amberine Jan. Today, we have Dr. Michael Hibner, who will be sharing his insight on starting a private practice in gynecologic surgery. Dr. Hibner is originally from Warsaw, Poland, where he attended the Medical University of Warsaw. He moved to Chicago in 1994, where he completed a residency in OBGYN at Cook County Hospital. He then went on to complete an FPMRS fellowship at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona under Dr. Javier Macrina. During fellowship, he decided his niche would be chronic pelvic pain. Before starting his own successful private practice in Scottsdale, Arizona, he served as a minimal invasive GYN surgery fellowship director at Dignity Health at St. Joseph's Hospital in Phoenix for many years. We are honored to have Dr. Hibner graciously share his time with us today. So, Dr. Hibner, you've had an impressive academic trajectory before embarking on the journey of starting a private practice from scratch. So our first question for you is, why would anyone want to leave the comfort of academia and undergo this hassle to begin with? Starting the private practice is for sure a hassle, but the reward is huge. It's much larger than, than the initial hassle. And I think, I think the, the, the biggest positive, for me at least, I mean, maybe some other people don't, don't feel that way, the biggest positive is uh, not to have to work for, for the man, meaning I'm on my own. This is my practice. I work for myself, not for anyone else. And, and I think a lot of people feel that way. A lot of people want to be on their own and be responsible for, for their life, for their schedule, for, for anything that happens. Uh, I think a lot of people are burnt out being told by uh, administrators in the hospital what to do and what not to do. Of course, uh, you pay price for that freedom. And uh, the price is the safety cushion. A big institution provides you with a safety cushion where if anything goes wrong, if you, if you get sick, if, if the patients don't show up, you still get salary. You do not have that in private practice. I pretty much live month to month. And like, for example, this month looks like it is going to be a, a, a really good month for my practice. But I don't know if the next month is going to be the same. I think also when you are um, in the academic practice, I think that the reimbursement structure is not clear. You get paid based on RVUs. Well, the problem is that those RVUs are actually calculated by the people who are paying you. And how can you be sure that they're doing it correctly? Also, when you are in, uh, in the academic practice or when you work for the big institution, when, when you're on salary, they do want you to produce more. They, want, they do want you to make more, but, but they may not be providing you with the necessary tools. So just an example, you may be working for the academic institution and the administrators are telling you, you have to do more surgery but they're not giving you more operating room time. So how can you do more surgery if you're not getting more operating room time? Well, being in private practice, it is completely different. Well, number one, I decide how much surgery I want to do. And if I want to do more surgery and I'm not getting operating room time in the, in the main hospital where I practice, I just go and I do a surgery in another hospital. And uh, of course, the, the big reason is that if you do it right, your reimbursement is significantly higher in the private practice. Gynecology uh, and gynecologic surgery is reimbursed poorly by insurance companies. Somehow they do not feel that uh, surgical procedures done on women have the value like surgical procedures in other specialties. 
So we all know that the reimbursement low uh, rate is quite low. Specifically in pelvic pain, there are a lot of procedures that I do that insurance companies recognize or they feel that they are experimental and they don't want to pay at all. So when I was in my academic practice and I was doing some of, I would say, complicated uh, surgical procedures on the nerves that would take, on pelvic nerves that would take many, many hours, I was getting so few RVUs for those procedures that it was almost not worth it. And being in private practice, especially private practice with a model of either cash pay or out of network, you are the one who decides on the price. You are the one who decides what the value of your work is and not the insurance company. Flexibility, freedom, and transparency definitely sound like good reasons. Could you tell us a little about what factors go into play when deciding where to start a practice, geographically speaking? Should you look at the volume of GYN surgeons in the area? Or a patient population? So in my case, I had a lot of family reasons to stay uh, in the city where I am, which is in Phoenix in Arizona. But I think in general, you really want to start your private practice in the same place that you've been practicing up until now. And that mostly has to do with the referrals. It has to do with the fact that you're already known in that area, not only to patients, but also to referring physicians. I honestly do not can't imagine uh, not only moving to another city, but also starting a practice in that city. It is a lot of work to start a private practice. And if at the same time, you would have to also move your household, look for the place to live, look for school for your children and and everything else, I, I believe that would be too much. So... I think the the best place uh, to start a private practice is to practice in the city where you've been practicing already. And um, I also don't believe that you should be graduating from your fellowship and starting the private practice. I think there needs to be a, a time where you are uh, working for the institution, preferably for the academic institution, because again, this gives you those those people contacts to be able to start a private practice. So basically, what you are saying is that local reputation is an essential asset before starting a practice. I, I believe that when starving, starting the private practice, the reputation is, number one, the single most important thing. I, I, I really do not think anything else counts as much as reputation, because this is how you're going to get your first patients. Those will be your, uh, the same patients you're seeing in your academic practice that will choose to follow you to your private practice. Okay, so you've decided to start a practice, you've zoned it on a location, now how do you go about funding it? Do you take on debt? Do you use your own savings? Do you sell stocks to investors? And ballpark, what would you say is the required initial investment to start your own practice? There is a perception among physicians that you actually need a lot of money to start uh, a gynecological surgery practice. And I don't necessarily believe that is true. I think that starting gynecological surgery practice can be done in a relatively inexpensive way. Um, and the reason I say that, because truly our office for gynecological surgeon, our main place of work is the operating room. And that is done in the hospital that we eventually are going to have privileges. And, and our office, uh, the office where we see patients, can be fairly minimal. That's something that we can be renting one day a week, and this is what I have done. 
from a friend or from another provider, or, or there is actually even offices built in that way where, where you can rent a space for, for one day a week. And uh, so your initial investment is is fairly low, and I will go through the list of, of, of things that you need to start the practice. So uh, depending on your personal um, income or the personal wealth that you have, I think it's probably best to fund it yourself. Because if you start taking bank loans, then uh, then you will always be dependent on somebody else. And, and, and the whole idea of going into the practice is for it to be your own. Now, you don't have to build it the way you are imagine that it should be uh, at the end right away. A lot of us started the practice by, again, renting some space from someone we know that wasn't using the office um, uh, five days a week, just renting one day a week and seeing patients there. Because again, most of our work is done in the operating room. Also, this is a 21st century. And one of the silver linings of COVID is that we have all gotten used to doing telehealth. Something that was practically not existent four or five years ago. Right now, it becomes a mainstream medicine. So for a lot of things, when we see patients, uh, if the patients are comfortable and we're comfortable, use telehealth. And honestly, majority of patients that I see in the office on telehealth, I do it from home. The very same place I'm sitting right now and talking to you. And the investment for that is minimal. So um, I think if you do it smart, you can probably start a private practice with about $20,000. And I do not think you need a higher initial investment. Now, later on, when the money starts coming in and you want to expand, of course, you will need more money. But hopefully, that money actually will be coming into the practice. Hmm. That's actually a very interesting take. Um, I honestly did not expect that as an answer. So this is a little more of a technical question. But what business structure do you recommend when starting a private practice? Sole proprietorship, limited liability company, corporation? So um, probably the very first thing that I did when I was uh, starting a private practice is I found an accountant, a business accountant. Not, not your personal uh, annual taxes uh, accountant, but a business accountant. And that person was recommended to me by um, another physician who practices in the same hospital, someone I, I have known. So the very, very first person that I contacted was the accountant. And, and it's really him who recommended to me what I should do as far as the business structure. And he recommended a professional limited liability corporation, which is PLCC, which uh, I am in Arizona. It was very easy to incorporate it. He, uh, he actually filled out all the paperwork for me. It took several days to become a, a, an entity, a PLCC. And, and this is what I do. And my understanding, at least in Arizona, that most of the new uh, medical practices that open are PLCCs. Now, that may differ in other states, but that's the structure that we have here. Okay. So earlier you touched upon initial costs and beginning as lean as possible. Could you expand some on specific startup and operating costs? And what are some of the potential costs that can be overlooked before starting? The first thing you're going to do when you're opening a practice, you'll, ha you'll have to find a space. And again, I do not recommend at least the first year having the actual office, but try to rent an office from someone that you know. Most of the physicians don't use their offices five days a week, so they'll be very happy 
to rent out a, an office for one day a week for you. And I was lucky I, I have a friend who did exactly that. So the rent for that office for one day a week, the monthly rent for that office was $350, which is actually a, a very reasonable cost. Well, again, we are in Arizona and, and generally um, costs here will be lower than in, in New York, of course, or, or Los Angeles. But, but nevertheless, it was $350 a month. And I had a use of all the equipment in the office. So we actually didn't have to bring any equipment, any gloves, any, um, any speculums, any, any other equipment I was allowed to use. Uh, I would uh, recommend renting the office from a physician of your specialty. So you, at least the, the equipment is similar. I uh, had to hire a, a one person who was the medical assistant, the scheduler, uh, practice manager in the way, and all of it, a jack of all trades. The salary for medical assistant, depending on the level of training, starts at least in Arizona anywhere from $25,000 to $50,000, depending on the skills and the duties of such a person. So you have to pay that person a salary. So that is $2,500 a month, roughly. You do have to pay yourself because you you still have to live, so you have to pay yourself. You have to get your own malpractice insurance. I think that's something that a lot of people may overlook, that when you work for the big institution, your malpractice insurance is paid by the institution. But here you have to pay it yourself. There are many malpractice insurance uh, professional liability companies. In my case, I went through a broker, and the, the broker was actually recommended to me by another physician, but the broker basically searched different offers from different insurance companies. And in gynecological surgery, depending on your past, depending if you had any lawsuits, how many lawsuits, if they're settled, if they're ongoing, that malpractice insurance may range anywhere from 15000 to probably $60,000, $70,000 a year. But most of those companies, the brokers, they don't actually need you to put that money up front. They, you, you, you can still make monthly payment on that amount. So uh, I calculated um, malpractice insurance, uh, another $2,500. So uh, we are right now at uh, $5,350. What you then need to get is, and that is very important, and please don't skip on that, is electronic medical record system. Something that there are some physicians still that try to keep their records on paper. But remember, if you keep it on paper, number one, you have to store it securely. And there are certain rules that you need to follow. You need to have the room to store those records securely. And if you travel between the offices or if you do some work from home, then you do not have those records. So choose your medical records wisely. So you have access from multiple computers and from your phone. So for example, if the patient calls you, if you're on call, if you happen to be on call and being in solo private practice, you are on call 24 seven for your own patients. Patient may call you when you are shopping at the mall. Uh, you need to be able to look on your phone and open her chart and, and be able to, to give her a, 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 an informed uh, decision on what, how to proceed depending on one, what her question is. My medical record system is called Cario, but there are some other ones. There's um, Athena. Athena is more expensive. It may have more functionality, but Cario costs about $200 a month. So that's another fee and and absolutely do not skip on electronic medical records. The next thing is you 
need to have a separate phone line. I am very careful uh, not to give patients my own private cell phone. So I actually have a phone that has two SIM cards that has two separate phone numbers. And that second phone number is the office number. Patients feel that is the office number, but I carry that phone with me. It's really my cell phone. At the same time, I got my assistant a cell phone with that second number. So initially when we were starting, I had a private and the office phone on my number and she had a private and a different office phone on her number, but they were very similar. So I went to the cell phone company and asked them for the numbers that were next to each other. So to, to the patient, it looks like it is, a, it is an office phone because they're almost the same. You need to have a biller and uh, billers usually work on, on the percentage. So uh, billers can charge anyone anywhere from 6 to 12% of your, of your um, billings. So with billers, you basically, they have that incentive that the better you do, the more they get paid. And I really think that the biller is one of the most important people in the practice because he or she is the person that is going to follow up on, file the claims, follow up on claims. And, and because, again, they work on that percentage, it is in their big interest for, for that revenue to be as high as possible. And then the next thing that you need is an accountant. Well, the accountant to, to keep all the books, right? So the IRS does not, uh, does not knock on your door. And the accountants, there are different accountants. I calculated that approximate um, fee for the accountant is $250 a month. The other things that you need to do, and I think that looks good from the get-go, and I think that's something that you do need to invest in, is in your digital presence. And I think the proper web page that looks good with, with your logo and your graphics it's important to have that on day one. It may not need to be a very sophisticated web page with multiple links and, and a lot of information, but at least to have that first web page with the name of your practice and uh, your logo, your address, and your phone. And if you, if you get that, your um, internet person will also get you an email with a domain of your web page. So you do not want to have a Gmail. It just does not look serious to the patient if you use Gmail or, or iCloud mail. You want to have your own domain and, and then you want to have an email with that domain. You don't need to have this super phenomenal web page, but you have to have a right name, right logo, right colors, and at least to have that first web page. It doesn't have to open up to other pages, but have that first web page. So for that, you'll have an additional cost. In my case, I had the same person that did the web page and the entire design of the web page and the logo. But again, um, when you added that, that money that, that I mentioned, it actually doesn't come up to like 20,000, to more than 20,000 $20, dollars, your starting cost. And I know there's that perception because I have other people told me that you need half a million dollars to to start the practice, I don't know what I would do with a half a million dollars. Now, now I'm renting the space. I have an office that is 2,600 square feet. I have two exam rooms. I have a procedure room where I actually do procedures in the office. I have consult room where I see new patients and returning patients. And then I have uh, like three working rooms, one for me and two more for my people. Uh, so now, of course, the costs are, uh, costs are higher because now I need to pay the rent. 
And you ask me about those hidden fees or the fees that we don't think about. Well, now I have to pay the insurance on the office, the um, uh, payroll company, because now my employees are what's called W-2. I have to pay the electricity. I have to pay the water, something that no one ever thinks about. I have to pay people to dispose of protected medical information. Uh, So, of course, the costs are much higher, but the benefit for me, one of the biggest benefits of now having my own office, even though I still see patients one day a week, the biggest benefits is, number one, there's a storefront. Patients come in and they actually see that we exist, but I also have a procedure room. I can do procedures in that office where that is the income that goes directly to me and not to the hospital or the surgery center. It sounds like there's a lot to keep track of. I'm assuming you delegate some of this to an office manager. And if so, how do you go about finding the right one? Is there a specific profile to look for? I have an office manager that I trust completely. She is someone who was my medical assistant in my, in my academic practice for about eight years. And then when I left, she left with me. So she was primarily a a medical assistant. But then when the practice was growing, I realized that the single most important person is really a practice manager. So for approximately six months, I hired a retired practice manager that did not want to be a practice manager. She already retired, but she agreed to come back to work for six months, not to manage the practice, but to teach my medical assistant to be a practice manager. Whoa, sounds like things aligned nicely in this case. The idea of having a retired practice manager help train the new one is brilliant. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, revenue. What would you say is a primary revenue producing activity in a gynecologic practice? Is it a hysterectomy or is it ancillary services and procedures? In gynecological surgery, often the the big surgeries don't pay that well. So uh, depending on what your model is and then do you take insurance, are you out of network, are you you cash only, then you'll have a different product. What I see uh, among a lot of physicians who perform gynecological surgery, that they do have a lot of other products in the office that they are providing that actually boost their revenue. So they have laser liposuction, they have vaginal rejuvenation, they have some kind of cosmetic procedures, or they have some kind of hormonal uh, palettes that they uh, provide because those procedures are actually not under the insurance. So you can be practicing gynecological surgery and you can be doing uh, hysterectomies, but for that you're contracted with the insurance. But uh, vaginal laser vaginal rejuvenation, that's not a procedure that insurance will ever cover, so you actually can take cash for that. So unfortunately, the way it is right now in most of those practices, are those ancillary procedures is what I think really pays the bills and not the main big surgeries. Also, the surgeries that are performed in the office generally pay better than when that same procedure is done in the hospital. Because in that case, you do not only get the the surgeon's fee, but you also get a facility fee. But that's actually not as easy as it sounds, because I personally have looked into that. If you want to build the insurance and you want to um, build the insurance for the facility fee, you actually have to have a facility 
that meets the requirements of being a facility. If someone thinks that they are going to rent an office and do, you know, hysteroscopy in the office and they're going to charge the insurance, the facility fee, they have to check those exact regulations on what are the standards that the procedure room in the office has to meet to be able to build the insurance. Okay. So is it even possible to take insurance in a gynecologic surgery private practice? It seems like it's a common theme to use OON models. I think it would be very difficult to pay the bills. Uh, the, the payments are so low from the insurance companies. I do not honestly believe it is, it is possible to do that. That's number one. Number two, even if it is remotely possible, why would you want to do that? And, and I'm not saying it in the way that, you know, you, you're trying to make all that money on patients. No, I don't. But what I'm saying is if you are going into a private practice, in a way you do have a different product than the big institution. And your product is a, is a, a more personalized care where patients can call me. They have my number. They can call me anytime. They can make an appointment very quickly. If I had a patient today that needed to talk to me on Monday, uh, have an appointment, yes, they would get such an appointment. They get into surgery quickly. And the process of going into a private practice is also differentiating yourself from a big institution. The example that I always give is, you know, when you buy a $20,000 car or $120,000 car, it is going to drive you to the same place. But there are still people that buy $120,000 cars. They do that because maybe they want to go in style. Maybe they think it's safer. Maybe it's more comfortable. Maybe they get there faster. But the end, at the end, when you get a hysterectomy in the big academic institution where you're pretty much just a number or where you have that personal private relationship with your doctor where you can call at any time. At the end, the hysterectomy will probably be the same, but there are still patients that choose that. Since you touched a little on niche target market, could you expand on how to go about marketing and promotion? Should we be considering investing in social media, billboards, magazines, etc.? or more of boots on the ground going to community physicians. In your opinion, what's the best way of promoting the practice? When I started my private practice, I got a good web page. I got a good designer, good web page. I'm actually very happy with that, but I never wanted to do anything else. But then I realized one thing when patients, even though they have already decided to come and see me and they have some perception that I am the person that may help them, they almost want me to have Instagram. They almost want me to have Facebook because I think in the uh, in 2022, you may just not look serious if you don't have those things. So yes, I actually do have a company that does my Instagram, my Facebook, my Google rankings, not ratings. Those comes from patients, but rankings, how high you rank. And, and this is a company that I actually pay monthly fee. Now, there are people that are very, very good with Instagram. There are very good people uh, with their own Facebook and you don't need the company. I know very little about social media, nor I have time to spend on social media. So, so I think... This is, it is very important to have Instagram and Facebook and have the presence. But remember that those things have to be updated very regularly. You don't just start the Instagram and you don't post. As far as the billboards and printed media, 
Uh, don't waste your time on that. No one looks at this. You may find plumbers that way or air-conditioned people or accident lawyers. Um, I don't think any um, serious physician should ever have a billboard. And there is absolutely no reason to, to put your name in any magazine or anything like that. Uh, as far as doing lunches, I would not do that. You know, to me personally, those lunches are annoying. It takes away from my time when I can do the charting and go home sooner. I would much rather have that in the electronic version. So I, I would not waste my time on the lunches. Uh, I, I think it is the word of the mouth from your academic practice that carries on and then that it's fueled by your good website. You need Instagram and Facebook to bring up your Google rankings. And that's how we advertise and that's how I think people should advertise. Oh, that is interesting. Okay, so to wrap up, any final pearls of wisdom on this topic that you would like to share with our audience? Yes, so, you know, I, so, um, number one, don't be premature. Meaning, what you want to do, you want to establish yourself first, academically, geographically, among patients, among referring physicians. Do not ever think into going into private practice uh, right of the fellowship. Number two, find a niche. You can't practice uh, minimally invasive gynecological surgery when there is 50 other minimally invasive gynecological surgeons around you. You have to you have to show that there's something that actually makes you better. The next word of advice is: This is 21st century. We are in post-COVID era. It is absolutely appropriate to do most of the things electronically. Meaning you don't have initially to have a big office. You don't have to have that presence. It's all in the cloud. Your electronic medical records, your consults, your telephone system can go on the internet and, and so many other things. Probably the last word, one before last word of advice is once you start uh, bringing the revenue, don't try to be too cheap. Because if you are not going to take insurance, meaning you're going to be more costly to the patients, then patients need to feel that your practice is different than your big institution practice. That it's not like the waiting room with 100 people waiting, that the furniture looks right, the, the colors match, the, the carpet is clean. The, I mean, it, it, patients look at all those things and they write their Google uh, ratings, which are super, super important. And, and probably the last uh, word of advice, um, of course, if you build it, they'll come. But the last word of advice is something I've, uh, I've already mentioned. Don't be embarrassed and don't apologize that you don't uh, take insurance or you're out of network because your product is different. You've already matured through your years in academic practice. You've, you've paid your dues. You trained the younger doctors below you to kind of take your place into in those academic practices. And your product is different. You are offering um, a different level of service. And of course, if the patient says, you know, I'm sorry, I can't afford this procedure, then absolutely send the patient to someone who can do that taking the insurance. This will only make you look better. I have a list of the physicians to whom I refer patients who cannot um, afford my services, and the uh, patients absolutely appreciate it. Excellent. This was extremely helpful. Thank you so much, Dr. Hibner, for sharing your valuable insight with us, and a special thanks to all of our listeners. Hope you found this interview helpful. Until next time.